where does space actually start? That is the question we're going to be answering today on Managing Cutoff. I am Anthony Colangelo, and we've got a special guest with us today, Mr. Jonathan McDowell. He is an astronomer at the Harvard-Smithsonian Center for Astrophysics, works on Chandra, among other things, and uh, recently wrote a paper called The Edge of Space Revisiting the Kármán Line, in which he argues that the 100-kilometer Kármán Line is not necessarily an accurate description of the edge of space, and something that is closer, if not exactly 80 kilometers, is appropriate. We're going to talk to him all about that, how we got here, why this is the right answer, uh, and what other kind of effects that might have in the industry. But before I call him up, uh, I just want to say that this is a very readable paper. It might sound intimidating. It might sound very math-heavy. It is very readable. It is only about 10 pages, maybe. That includes the references page, which is quite long. Um, so go check it out. There's a link in the show notes to it. Definitely take a read if you're interested in this sort of thing. I think it's it's very much worth reading because it talks a lot about uh, the historical precedents, why this matters, all sorts of different aspects that you might not have considered uh, if you're only really thinking about this in terms of, of space launches or satellites or something like that. There's a lot more that's going into it. Uh, and I found it a very interesting paper. So go check it out in the show notes. And uh, let's give Jonathan a call. Hello. Jonathan, thank you so much for joining me. Welcome to Main Engine Cutoff. I'm very excited to have the man that's been at the center of space nerd arguments for the past few months on the show with me here. Well, it's great to be here, Anthony. Uh, I'm interested in, I'm sure at this point people have read many headlines about how you you are single-handedly redefining space uh, and other things that are maybe a little over the top. Uh, I'm interested, before we dive into the details, you know, to hear a little background about how you decided to do this research, how did you get to this point about publishing this this particular paper? Right. Uh, and so I've been promising people I'll write this paper for the past 25 years or so. <laughs> okay, so uh, no pressure going into I, it. Yeah, exactly. And I, I, well, so, you know, I, I, I first started to worry about this when back in the 90s, I was uh, making some of my early lists of rocket launches uh, and I'd been making orbital launches, but I branched out into suborbital flight. And so I, then I had to face the question, what should I include? Uh, uh, what's a suborbital flight as opposed to just some boring little toy rocket in the atmosphere. And so that led me down this path of where, where does space begin? And at the same time, I was researching the history of, the X-15 rocket plane, which is, uh, you know, for those of us who are like real space nerds, uh, mention of the X-15 brings a little glow to your heart, right? It's it's uh, 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 one of these things that the public don't know about so much, but it, it's a great piece of history. The very first reusable space plane dropped from a B-52, popping up 100 kilometers into space and, and down again, very much like Spaceship Two does today. Uh, and so then I, that led me to the uh, fact that the uh, Air Force pilots who went above uh, 80 kilometers in, in the X-15 uh, had been awarded astronaut wings. And so I looked into that a little more and, and the structure of the atmosphere, uh, uh, the fact that the mesosphere ends about there. And I convinced myself to first order that 80 kilometers was a pretty good boundary for space and made maybe a little more sense than the 100-kilometer one that a lot of other people were talking about. So that's what, since the 90s, I've been using as my boundary of space. 
And I wrote about it in my paper on the X-15 that was in a space history magazine called Quest back in, in 1994. and said, oh, this is where I think it should be. But I didn't really justify it in, in detail. And I always meant to go back. And, I, and as the uh, public interest in suborbital space tourism grew, and first we had Spaceship One and then Virgin Galactic gearing up to do Spaceship Two, I thought, well, you know, I really better write this paper because if I leave it too long, you know, I'll miss the window of people being interested in it. Well, you just about nailed it exactly on timeline as you needed to, uh, given the, right, the way exactly, the years ended. I was, I, I, as I got into the, the, you know, writing the paper, I realized I needed to learn more atmospheric physics. I needed to um, learn more about uh, uh, orbital drag and things like that. And so I, I, you know, it actually took me about five years longer than I expected to write the paper, even once I'd started getting into it. But um, fortunately... It took Virgin Galactic <laughs> a lot longer too. So I stayed. I managed to uh, to get it out the door while it was still relevant. Yeah, that's the that's the underlying uh, storyline of this: is delays in space are are not just right. the spaceflight participants' side of things. <laughs> right, exactly. So my own delays are you know, just as bad. But but uh, but finally, I wrote it up and got it out, and I'm I'm really you know gratified by the amount of interest it's it's gotten and and uh, you know comparatively warm reception. Of course, I haven't convinced everybody yet. Yeah, exactly. But uh, but you know, give it give it ten years, and I think people will come around to my point of view. Do you were you surprised by the reaction that the paper had gotten? Did you expect there to be a lot of argument about it or or were you surprised by that? I you know, I really didn't know. I submitted the paper to the journal and I was like, well, you know they're just going to reject it and go, this is boring, you know, don't <laughs> know what we want to publish or it'll be a big, big thing, right? And and either no one will read it or everyone will read it. So I just I just had no sense of of uh whether or not it would be uh hitting the right mark, but but uh but it seems to have done. It, I and I was careful to put in uh, you know some less technical stuff in the beginning of the paper, so uh um it uh you know, it sucks you in a little bit, right? Because you get through the first couple pages and you go, oh, that's not so bad. And then the math hits. And... <laughs> I, I did like the way that you described, you know, your interest in this. And, and you, you said specifically that you are doing this because you care about that historical aspect of, of being able to keep the Jonathan Space Report up to date. Um, but that there's all these other considerations that go into this specific definition. There's regulatory approvals. There's uh, geopolitical concerns about when are you in my airspace and when are you not. Um, so, you know, do you think this is going to actually stay in that historical mindset? Or do you think people that are interested in the other areas of definitions are actually going to latch on to this paper and use it uh, to kind of clarify some of their own definitions? Uh, I, I think they are. And so I was uh, invited to give a talk to the Galloway Symposium last month in Washington, which is a uh, annual meeting of uh, the space law and policy community uh, in the United States. And um, so uh, I, the sense from talking to those folks is that, that this is a question whose time has finally come. People have been arguing about it for 60 years and since before Sputnik, right? And, and 
the fact that there's more activity that so so for a long time right the only activity in this sort of liminal region between say 50 kilometers at the top of the stratosphere where balloons top out and uh 120 or so kilometers where the circular orbit uh, uh satellites get down to um there wasn't really a lot going on except for elliptical orbit satellites approaching re-entry and sounding rockets that stayed there <clears throat> briefly. And none of those things really forced people to sort of make a, uh, uh, to make a choice. But we have now Virgin Galactic flights. We have the, uh, these long range hypersonic weapons that may or may not be in this altitude range. Uh, and so we, we have uh, space planes, that may have long gliding re-entries through different over different countries uh, at uh, altitudes that are on the edge of space, and so I think over the next twenty years, that area of space is going to be a lot more travelled in a sense, uh, or get a lot more attention than it has done, and so that's going to force regulatory agencies uh, uh, to really make a choice. That's my guess. So can you give us our your best, you know, elevator pitch style uh, description of, of what your conclusion is in, in all of this? If I were to go tell somebody, you should read this paper because here is what it says and this is why it's interesting. What would that be uh, to you? Right. So I claim <clears throat> that there is a reasonably well-defined spot at which space begins. And it is 80 plus or minus 10 kilometers above the Earth. And the reason I come to that conclusion is through both uh, an empirical looking at the data approach and a theoretical approach. And the fact that they give the same answer is what convinces me that I'm on the right lines. Uh, and so the empirical approach is you look at elliptical orbit satellites and you see how low can they go without immediately reentering. Uh, and it turns out that satellites can have perigees in the 80 to 90 kilometer range for days or even weeks at a time uh, before they burn up. But you don't see ones with perigees in the 70s kilometers that <clears throat> last more than an orbit or so. Uh, and and so it's a it's a pretty well defined point at which below there you you melt you don't you check in and you don't check out. Then if you take Carmen's original answer. So the Carmen line is uh, uh, was the idea of uh, Theodor von Carmen, <coughs> uh, founder of things like JPL and Aerojet, uh, and uh, he said, roughly speaking, in its most abstract form, right? It's where do orbital dynamics forces become more important than aerodynamic forces? Uh, and you know, even that. The space station's altitude, you have to worry about aerodynamics, you have to worry about atmospheric drag, but it's not the dominant force. Gravity is the dominant force. Uh, whereas down, you know, at sea level, aerodynamics really dominates things. It's, it's a bigger force uh, than gravity. And uh, especially if you're traveling, uh, I should step back. The common question was if you're traveling at orbital speed, is aerodynamics more important than gravity? Uh, 
So you can't travel at orbital speed near the ground because you immediately melt up, <laughs> right? That you burst into flames. The aerodynamics. Yeah, the thermal wins. properties become dominant in that case. <laughs> well, that's also true. Yeah, that's a detail that I haven't gotten into. Um, and and so so um, uh, you know, there's a point at which uh, the um, at an orbital velocity, the the aerodynamics forces become bigger than the orbital dynamics forces, and that. When you calculate that, you know, that uh, the first time people sort of wrote down Kármán line and and calculated it, they got answers like 85 kilometers or thereabouts. The idea that it was 100 didn't really emerge until maybe the 70s uh, when people, I think, felt that it was um, the atmosphere varied too much to define it precisely, and so you might as well take a really round number. Uh, but in fact, what I showed was that actually, at that altitude, the atmosphere doesn't vary that much. Uh, and that if you run a whole bunch of different model atmospheres for all kinds of conditions of solar activity and latitude and everything you want to change and, and different kinds of satellites, you basically always get 80 plus or minus 10 kilometers for where where this Kármán criterion uh, is met, uh, which is exactly the same region that we got from actually looking at the data. Uh, and so that's why uh, I, I feel like, you know, and I'm going into this, I thought, oh, you know, I'm going to get some solar activity is really going to change things. It's going to be 11 year cycle and some years the Kármán line is going to be here and some years it's going to be somewhere totally different. No, nah, it turns out solar activity changes things a lot when you're up at the space station's altitude. But when you get lower in the atmosphere, it doesn't really make that much difference. Uh, and and so when I saw that, I, I was like, okay, it's time to publish because this is, you know, this is telling me that the the Kármán criterion actually does point you to uh, a layer that is in agreement with my data and is you know, significantly lower than 100. The variability that you're talking about, where it's 80 plus or minus 10, do you feel that that's as precise as we're ever going to be able to get in this particular, uh, you know, instance? Or or do you think that there's something else that could make us come up with a more definitive line? Because I think that's the one part that people struggle with, is that we're arguing over, you know, 80 versus 100 kilometers, but our variability is still enough that it's at a certain point, you're like, okay, does it matter anymore if you're in space or not? I don't even know why I'm, you know, why I'm reading this kind of stuff. Right, right. Well, I mean, it depends on your person. That's a personality thing, I think. <laughs> whether yeah, you, exactly. Whether you care they're, about they're not that the kinds not. that are writing these papers. Uh, right. Um, I, uh, you know, ultimately, I, I have to make a choice for my list. And so I'm writing down my justification for the choice that I've made. And I think it's a good choice and other people should adopt it too. But if you don't, well, that's that's fine. Pick some other value. Uh, the, the, um, uh, how precise I, you know, the dominant thing in that plus or minus 10 is the type of satellite. If you have a balloon versus a cannonball, right? The cannonball, uh, feels the atmosphere less. Uh, and so it's effective common line is lower. Um, and so, you know, that's, that's really what limits the Kármán argument for where it, uh, uh, for where things are. 
Um, now, maybe you can come out with a different argument of where space should start, uh, uh, or just use the empirical one of uh, um, where how low things fly in practice before they re-enter. And with better data and better orbital fit, you might be able to refine that a little more. Maybe it's not clear to me what the true variability on that is. But my guess is that the the atmospheric variability is is at least about five kilometers. So that that's as as um, narrow as you're ever going to get it. Yeah, yeah. And I do appreciate the, you know, I think a lot of times um, when this paper is written about in different media outlets or anything like that, it, it gets maybe misconstrued in, in that you're saying this is the line that works for everything ever and everybody should, you know, follow this as the law. Whereas what you're really saying is, you know, there, there are lines for different reasons. Everything's got its own purpose for its own definition. And there's going to be regulatory things that matter in some cases and others don't care about that line. And we already have 10 different arbitrary boundaries between low Earth orbit and medium Earth orbit, or Earth and inter interplanetary space, or solar system and its interstellar, as we've heard with the Voyager debate in the last month or so. Of, did it did Voyager leave the solar system, or is it just now in a different regime? That's right. And I, and I have a fun little paragraph in the paper or so where I actually get into those other boundaries a bit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I like that and, section and make a lot. My, make, I, I, make my, I snuck in my definition of where deep space begins, <laughs> which I'm very excited about because... Uh, one of the things I hope to publish in the next few years is a catalog of objects in deep space and what their orbits are, which is something that, you know, NORAD and Space Command don't, don't track that, right? So right. It's very hard to get that orbital data. Uh, so I've been painstakingly uh, compiling it over decades, and I'm close to being ready to publish. Yeah. But again, that's uh, I'm about the stage where I was when I told people I was close to being ready to publish the Edge of Space paper about 10 years ago. Yeah, exactly. It's going to uh, be a little while. I have about uh, uh, um, over slightly over 1,000 objects in the Deep Space Catalog. Wow. Now. All right. Well, that would be very um, cool to see. Yeah, so so that's that's my little teaser for, for you know stuff to come, uh, and uh, um, so uh, yeah, so so these and these boundary again that boundary is even more arbitrary. The boundary I'm making for deep space is I'm looking at basically arguing where can you ignore the existence of the moon and the sun and say that something's really in a Kepler ellipse around the Earth. You can do that out to about. 150,000 kilometers. So um, uh, Chandra, the spacecraft I work on, is is sort of about at that boundary. But TESS, the uh, uh, new exoplanet satellite, is is out beyond that, and its orbit isn't really as simple as just a Kepler ellipse. It's heavily affected by the moon. So it feels like that feels to me like the right point to start talking about deep space is when you really just can't use, you know, uh, uh, can't pretend that Kepler's laws are all you need. So, so, but, but that's arbitrary. You could move, you could choose another, uh, another value. And, uh, I'm, uh, um, you know, I'm still playing with that. So, uh, and again, why do you need it? Well, <laughs> you know, if I'm going to make a list of objects in deep space, I need to justify what's in the list and what's isn't. What yeah, it, exactly. That's really all it goes down to. And I feel like that's the part where people get hung up where, you know, it's for when we're talking about regulatory changes in the U.S. right now, we're mm -hmm. talking about a lot of different licensing changes and different agencies that are going to be taking care of different parts of uh, space regimes in that regard. You know, it doesn't necessarily matter to each individual one 
which line we use to compile historical lists, but it does matter for SpaceX to know which agency they need to go to to license their reusable rockets. Um, so right, I feel like I in each argue, case, it's it's specific to the use case of that agency or of that flight, uh, and they will need definitions at some point. But you know, it's we we don't need one to rule them all. We don't, but I would argue that it's convenient if there is one reasonable, sensible definition. Uh, if you have no reason to choose another one, then you might as well pick mine. Yes, I agree. Uh, right. <laughs> the more, the more, the more people, <laughs> the more people use the same one, the better, maybe. Yeah. And and so I think you know, you're in the end, people are either going to pick eighty or a hundred, depending on whether they feel like <clears throat> round metric numbers are important, or. Uh, uh, at least a pathetic attempt at a physical argument is, is more important. <laughs> so given that you're right, let's say your paper checks out on the historical timescale and you nailed it. Where, what do we actually do from here to change definitions? And how does that kind of mimic the way that it's been for the last 60 years where the U.S. has said one thing and the international community has said the other? Uh, has that mattered much, the difference internationally for 60 years? And how do we go about changing that across the board? Right. I, I, I think, you know, that's going to be a process at uh, COPUS, the uh, Committee on Peaceful Uses of Outer Space, ultimately, um, as well as the FAI, the, uh, the International uh, Aviation Federation, which uh, uh, currently uses uh, the Carmen line, uh, the 100-kilometer Carmen line, to define records, like, uh, you know, what's the, uh, what's the space flight? Uh, and uh, they are actually talking about having a conference next year to rediscuss where the boundary should be. So that's that's the short-term next step. The uh, in the longer term, I think uh, um, the it will probably take an incident, is what I'm guessing. It will probably take someone's space plane passing through the. Uh, um, airspace or maybe not airspace hmm. of some country that objects uh, to sort of motivate people to uh, uh, to really get this as a, as international space law uh, and and so it just depends when that starts happening well that's a and foreshadowing so, you know, the, the, element the, the, of this yeah that's pretty uh, yeah, I mean, the example I, I, I give right is that one where it's clearly space is all the uh, tearing hair out that happened when the North Korean missile flew over Japan. Um, and so North Korea launched these, these missile tests, uh, and they flew over Japan and landed in the Pacific. And, and there was great you know, panic in the Japanese media uh, about, oh, this missile's flying over Japan. But, you know... It was 500 kilometers up the whole time it was over uh, Japanese waters and Japanese territory. Um, so it was above the space station. And no one panics when the space station flies over you. So, right. Or any number of spy satellites that are up there. Right, exactly. And But because it was suborbital, somehow that felt more invasive to people. And I think it's because we don't have a boundary of space. And to... Uh, uh, you know, to to kind of uh, if the boundary of space were more official, um, it might be clearer to people that okay, that's in space. It's not 
you know, bothering Japan uh, any more than a satellite would be. Whereas if it were at 60 kilometers, maybe that would be uh, more of a, a reason to complain to the North Koreans about what they were doing. Well, that's a that's a good real world example of this. That's, you know, you can say how much does this matter? But then you get into that exactly right hot button issue this year. That's just like the perfect example of this. So that's that's a good one. I, I didn't I noticed that wasn't in the paper, but that might have been a whole different paper. <laughs> right. Exactly. Well, I just want to get into the political stuff. Right. Yeah, because yeah. actually, that's not my motivation. But 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 if you ask me, you know, why should other people care? That's an example. Um, before I let you out of here, onto your day up there, uh, what other things in space have you been watching lately? What are you particularly excited about this year? Uh, I know you've got the space report that you're always working on, so I assume you're getting close to the uh, 2018 edition here. Right, exactly. So, so in the past few years, as well as the uh, sort of monthly-ish uh, space report, I, I've put out uh, a year in space paper where I summarize statistics of launches and stuff like that. Um, and, uh, and so I'll be working on that soon. Might be a little late this year because I'm rewriting all my code that does those statistics. Uh, but, but I think, you know, the story of this year is the pivot between a, a space age in which the Soviet Union and then Russia dominated the launch rate and an era in which China dominates the launch rate. And China, you know, when I started off in this game was sort of, they were very serious about space. They launched like one satellite a year or something like that. And in the early 90s, they decided to invest big and they've been gearing up and gearing up. And this past couple of years, they've finally gotten uh, to this sort of more serious level where they've been, uh, they've I think now got more spy satellites in orbit than America, for example. They um, they launched <coughs> more orbital launches this year than anyone else. Uh, they still aren't launching as much tonnage. Uh, the U.S. launchers typically are launching heavier satellites. Uh, but in terms of, of just straight number of launches, uh, China's now pulled into the lead after having been in sort of, you know, fourth place not so long ago, whereas the Russian space program has continued a slow decline. Uh, and so I think that's, that's a huge, uh, historic shift that's worth paying attention to. Um, the other thing I've been looking at is again, the, the, the deep space stuff. Um, and one thing in the big picture I'm looking at is um, low Earth orbit is sort of basic infrastructure now. And that's reflected in the way that NASA is uh, uh, looking to commercial companies to launch astronauts and so forth. The inner solar system is starting to be at the stage where Earth orbit was in the 80s. And then it's moving from the frontier to the government infrastructure kind of era. <clears throat> and so we're starting to get communication satellites in orbit around Mars. Um, we're, I think, going to have some kind of navigation satellite at some point in, in interplanetary space. Where we're, we're going to start seeing these sort of applications 
where it's not just you send this one probe, but but the inner solar system is an arena where uh, uh, which is sort of home territory now. And it's becoming home territory, not just for the superpowers, uh, or not just for the original space superpowers of, of uh, the United States, uh, Russia, now Europe, Japan, but India is now forging out into the inner solar system. Uh, China has, has uh, started more serious uh, planetary exploration. So I think that is a historic shift. Um, the, the, the real frontier is now the outer solar system. And of course, uh, as we speak, uh, New Horizons is barreling down on 2014 MU69, the uh, object that in the Kuiper Belt. Um, and so this sort of mental shift from, you know, Earth orbit is is like the stuff that we we do, and deep space is the special thing, and you know, Mars and stuff is 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 like you know only very special. Um, now Mars and Venus are going to be ordinary, and it's it's uh, Jupiter and the asteroids and uh, and so on that are that are that are uh, more sporty. Well, from your your mouth to the Venusian scientists' ears, because they they're hoping that <laughs> Venus gets uh, pretty tired pretty quick. Yeah, know? yeah, we're 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 overdue for a Venus mission, absolutely. I've been encouraged this year. Uh, you know, Hayabusa was like what 150 million dollars of a total budget for a, a mission like that. That's just doing amazingly out there right now and and you start seeing these missions that are doing this you know operationally almost they had some problems with the old hayabusa hayabusa 2 is doing great right uh and on these slim budgets that are just indicative that they're able to do this you know multiple times in different destinations and that is it's hard not to look at what we're in right now as anything but a golden age in space i i think that's right Uh, and the japanese space program in particular i think i have great respect for um, you know, they, they used to do like really good niche stuff very cheaply in a small team. They had a period when they got more ambitious without really changing the way they do things. And that didn't work out so well. They had a lot of failures for a while. Uh, and then they pulled it together again and, um, uh, and they've been doing these ambitious missions and some of them don't work out. Uh, and, but, you know, there's this old saying uh, that in something like, like space exploration, if you don't fail, you know, at least 10% of the time, then you're not being adventurous enough, right? If you, if you always succeed, then you're operating too much within your comfort zone. So I think the fact that they do these ambitious missions, they occasionally fail, but then they learn from those mistakes and they go back and do it right. Um, uh, it's just been very inspiring to see. Well, Jonathan, I've got a link in the show notes to your paper, The Edge of Space, Revisiting the Carmen Line. Is there anything else that you would like listeners out there to go check out of your work? Uh, well, obviously the website. Uh, if you Google Jonathan Space Report or just Jonathan in Space, you'll find it, planet4589.org. Uh, and there's uh, lots of stuff hidden away there. One of these days I will update the HTML to not look like it was written in 1994, which it was. Hey, you've been working on the paper um, since then, man. You got you got other stuff going on. <laughs> Exactly. So my my attitude has always been, you know, I have text files. They're not, you know, Microsoft formats or anything like that. You've got to do some work to use them. But that's right. I'm putting the work in to get the content out there. 
and uh, and then other people are welcome to repackage that in uh, in some easier to get at form. So um, so so you know I got a lot of info out there. It's all free. Just cite me, uh, and uh, but uh, I hope you enjoy it. And uh, I'm I'm just you know doing most of this for my own amusement, right? Uh, that that uh, I want to know. Uh, how many tons were launched into low Earth orbit this year? And you know, questions like that. And uh, having gone to all that effort to find out the answer, it's fun to share it. Well, I appreciate that. I'm sure everyone else out there does as well. It's been a pleasure having you on, Jonathan. I hope we'll hear from you again when you've uh, got that next paper out, or hopefully before then even. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) hopefully. All right, cheers. All right, thank you so much. Talk to you later. So with that, that is it for us today. Thank you so much again to Jonathan for coming on the show. It's amazing to have Uh, people like him on the show to share the airwaves with me for a little bit. Once again, go check out his paper. It is really, really worth a read. So check that out in the show notes if you want some more of that. Uh, And on Twitter at Planet4589, he is a a must-follow if you're interested in any space nerdery like I am. Uh, He is a frequent source for me on headlines. If if you listen to the headline show uh, where I talk about all the goings-on of the week and anytime talking about launches, I'm probably pulling my numbers uh, from Jonathan's Twitter feed. So head over there and check that out. And speaking of headlines, I want to say a very special thank you to all of you supporting Main Engine Cutoff over on Patreon. Patreon.com slash Miko is where you can go to support the show. Uh, There are 239 of you supporting the show every single month. That includes 34 executive producers who made this episode of Main Engine Cutoff possible. Chris, Pat, Matt, George, Brad, Ryan, Jameson, Nadim, Peter, Donald, Lee, Jasper, Chris, Warren, Bob, Russell, John, Moritz, Joel, Jan, David, Grant, Mike, David, Mintz, Eunice, Rob, Tim Dodd, The Everyday Astronaut, and six anonymous executive producers. Thank you all so much for making this show possible. Uh, We could not do it without your support. And the 205 others over at patreon.com slash Miko. If you are a $3 a month more uh, supporter, you get uh, headlines every single weekend. I do a short show running through all the stories of the week. It's a great way to stay up on space news. So check that out if you like. And I will mention one more thing that we just hit our $1,000 a month goal on Patreon. And the goal there was to start streaming these shows live as I record them. So look for some of that soon. I'm finalizing my setup here. I just got a new computer here, got a new studio setup going. So uh, I will keep you abreast of that news uh, when it happens. So thank you so much again for your support. And if you've got any thoughts on the show that you'd like to send my way, uh, head over to Twitter at WeHaveMiko or the email is Anthony at ManagingCutoff.com. Thank you so much for listening today, and I will uh, be talking to you soon. We've got a Q&A episode coming up next week to end the year, and uh, so you'll hear from me pretty soon here on the main podcast feed. Thanks again, and I'll talk to you soon. <laughs>